example, John 15:18 to 27. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to, do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that, they, that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom shall I send to you from the father? The spirit of the truth who proceeds from, from the father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Thank you, Tunde. Let's pray. God in heaven, you have promised that as the snow falls down to the ground, it does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands on, causing it to bud and flourish, bringing seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so is your word. It never returns void. And this is in context, as we've been reminded, this is in context of you saving and having mercy on people. And I thank you so much for such a promise. And I trust your word will not return empty today, but rather the opposite, that your word today will burst open and flourish before us, draw us in, captivate us. May we get it better than we've ever gotten it before, more than just simply an emotional response. Minister to every part of us that we would understand you better, we would recognize your love greater, and in that we would recognize your call in our lives bespoke to us individually, but also as a body. Oh Lord, draw us in, regardless from where we have started. May we all find ourselves at your feet, Jesus. So, immerse me in your spirit, God, that you would be seen and come upon me so that you would do the work, not me. And speak fluent us now. I pray for supernatural attention, that we would be able to be honed in and captivated to your every word, but also, God, supernatural retention, that we would be able to retain what it is you seek to speak to us. And in that supernatural intention to apply it to our lives, Lord, and not just simply agree to the precepts, but rather like one who builds their house on the rock to do what you say. So now we commit this time to you, Lord. Have every moment of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please never just believe me. Never just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your final say. The Bible must be your authority because if it's not, the fancier talker, the person with the bigger microphone, or just the louder voice may be able to capture your attention but lead you to a terribly dangerous place. And God wants us to be able to, to hold every person and everything we hear in check. It tells us we are to test Everything, test every spirit, to test everything we hear, to test every prophecy, not to despise them, but to test them. The word, by the way, for what it's worth in the Greek is the word dokimazete. And dokimazete was a money wear. It was a very important term because back then, believe it or not, there was a time when the coin you carried actually was the value it actually was printed on it. Now, imagine that. 
In other words, we didn't just reserve the idea that this piece of plastic that says a five on it was worth five pounds. Whatever it was that you carried was actually worth that amount in the material carried. So you can imagine what would happen if you shaved off some of its weight. It looked like it in face value, but it didn't have the actual value it claimed to have. And that's the term he uses about testing all things. It may look good on the surface, it may have something printed on the front of it, and it may look great in the brochure, but weighing it out to the tried and true weight of the Word of God. Now that's another story. Now having said that, we are now in the Gospel of John chapter 15 as we continue verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Scripture. And Jesus now is giving us this very intimate time. John walking us through a time exclusive to the Gospel of John from chapters 13 through chapter 17. Almost entirely everything you read there is going to only be given to us in the Gospel of John, which is fair considering that 94% of the Gospel was ex- is exclusive. Now, in this text, we have this very intimate moment where Jesus, in the upper room, washes the disciples' feet. We only get that exclusively in the Gospel of John. During that Pesach, during Passover, and then from which, at the end of that chapter, chapter 13 and 14, he'll say, then arise, let us be going. Now Jesus is on his way walking to the garden that he knows he's going to be arrested in. John makes clear that Jesus had often gone to this specific place we called Gethsemane, or we would call it the Olive Press, for that's what it means. But Jesus had gone to the place regularly to make it easy for Judas to be able to find him. Now, with that in mind, Jesus, during that time, now Judas is on his way getting his detachment of troops. The cross directly in front of Jesus arrests his abduction. And he's got a group of guys and all he can think about is them. And he tells them, you're going to need to stick around. Many is the word remain. Abide is the word we read it in the New King James. And he tells us, you need to abide in me, Jesus speaking, the vine, because it's the only way you're going to be fruitful. And then you need to abide in my word because it's the only way you're going to stay in love with me. And you're going to have to abide in my love because it's the only way you're going to love one another. Everything about that was cause and effect. Something that if there's one disciple who seems to get it, it's this guy. Now, interesting, when we read the Gospels, as long as the Gospel of John is, there's 21 uh, chapters, it's interesting because he uses only about 600 words. In other words, he uses the vocabulary of roughly somebody in about third year is kind of the idea of school, which is an interesting thought, and yet infinitely, infinitely profound. And nobody seems to have a better understanding of what we would call cause and effect, or we might call it a conditional statement, if, then. Parents know this one. If you do this, this is what's going to happen to you. That is actually a very good thing because what children learn from that is is bad actually breeds some form of negative consequence. John, to give you an idea, there'll be in this little area here, there'll be six of those conditional statements made in that tiny little text that, that Tunde wrote. But it's not only that. John, when he writes First John, which is only five chapters long, it'll be included more than 20 times, this idea of these conditional statements. Now, I want to remind you, this is the last thing that Jesus said, in essence, was, I need you guys to love one another. And I'm not going to call you servants anymore. I'm calling you friends because... Well, because servants don't know what their master's about, but I shared everything the Father has given me. Everything the Father has given me, I've shared with you, and I'm calling you friends. And what Jesus does then in in this remaining part of this uh, chapter is what he really does in the simplest sense is shows us what is the greatest challenge to abiding in him. What is the one thing, perhaps more than anything else, that will tempt us to stop abiding, perhaps more effectively than anything else, in this And that is this issue of hate, which he mentions eight times in this text. But let me just put it this way. 
As Jesus first, and don't miss this, he started by calling us friends, and now what he's showing us is this is the price of being the friend of Jesus. Now, it is important to note, you are going to choose your friends one way or another. Now, regardless of whether you're passive and you just kind of let it happen, you're still making a choice. Or whether you're much more concerned and careful about the people you choose, as we've taken the warning from Solomon, for instance, to be careful what friends you choose. What's clear in all of this is that no matter what friend you choose or friends you choose, you're going to have to pick a side. And when you do, it'll come part and parcel with enemies on the other side. If somebody hates your friends and you're part of that crew, chances are they're going to have a problem with you too. And that's what he's telling us in this text as well. Now, notice, by the way, in this, that Jesus would say, as he's already taught us in Matthew six twenty four, no one can serve two masters. And he doesn't just go with the idea that you can serve one and be indifferent to the other. He actually says you'll love one and hate the other. He says you'll actually serve one and despise the other. That is a radically thick line between the two. And the question is, who do you want to make yourself an enemy to? And who do you want to make yourself a friend to? Now, as we're about to dive into this text, I want you to realize something in this. That Jesus warns us that being his friend is going to make you an enemy to the world and its system. Which John, this same guy, says in 1 John 5, is under the influence or sway of the wicked one. So let's start with that for a second. Consider the idea that if you're going to actually claim friendship with Jesus, somebody's going to rise up and have a real problem with that. The question is, did you know that when you signed up? Because Jesus wanted to make that clear from the get-go. Now, consider this. Genesis 1, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Perhaps you're aware of it. God is having a board meeting. And he seems to be having a board meeting with himself. God having with God. We might say the Father and Jesus speaking. And he says, let us make man in our own image. The word is tzalem. Tzalem is the idea of, and every Hebrew word comes from a verb. It means to cast a shadow. Now, if I stood Suzanne and Tunde up next to each other and I looked at their shadows, we all looked at their shadows, and they were at the same perspective, we might get a few things from that. We might be able to tell which one was heavier. Tunde, by the way. Uh, which was, who has more hair? Suzanne, by the way, uh, unless we want to include your face, right. Uh, you know, we might be able to tell, but we, I couldn't tell you which one has a darker or deeper voice or a darker skin from looking at the shadows. And the idea of it is there's something in the shape of that that I can get from a shadow, but I can't get everything. Now, consider that from the perspective of characters, because that's the perspective God is speaking of in the word Salam. In other words, something unique about man will tell us something unique about God. And God says, and this is a very classic Hebrew way of doing things, is you're aware of the fact that question comes from the same word we get the word quest from? The idea of, remember when Jesus would say to the religious leaders, go and learn what this means. Here's something that doesn't seem to reconcile. Now go find the answer to it. And that's exactly what God does in Genesis chapter 1. First of all, you are aware of the fact, think about how odd this is, that God has a board meeting with God when no man is around yet, which means none of us were there to write it down. And then later on, he has to tell that same thing to someone, in this case Moses, to write down so that we now, 6,000 years later, can sit down and read it and go, you know, God was talking to God over here because we weren't there for it. And he says, I want to make you uniquely in a way like me. That's an important place to start. So I start looking at what makes man unique. 
Now, interesting, because the next thing God does is not make man. We'll read that he makes male and female and he blesses them and we see what a blessed marriage looks like from Genesis 1.27. A beautiful, beautiful text. But what's interesting in all of that is then we kind of go through the, the creation and all that and when God does is, is he kind of backs up and shows us the distinct aspect of it in Genesis chapter 2 starting in verse 7 where he forms man where with everything else he had actually spoken and it came to exist. This time God actually forms it like a potter shapes clay. A very different word in the Hebrew. But then God has this interesting conversation again. Now we're in Genesis chapter 2. And if you have your Bibles, follow me on this so you know I'm not inventing this. In Genesis chapter 2, in verse 18... God has this second statement. Now, up to this point, God has created everything, and in creating everything, he makes the same judgment call. Tov. Try this Hebrew word. Here's a simple Hebrew word for you. Can you say tov? Tov means good. It's used to this day. If someone were to say, how was your meal? Now, you might say time, it's delicious, but for the most part, you'd say tov. It means good. How are you feeling? Tov. I'm good. And that's the word that God, when he's created everything, he looks and he goes, Tov. Now, God doesn't even have to do that, but for some reason, God is making this judgment call. And then, of course, telling Moses to write it down later so we can read it and go, look, God said Tov. But now, for the first time in all of Scripture, God actually says, Lo Tov. Lo means no. Or, in this case, not. Not good. And he says, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, interesting, who is God talking to? Well, he seems to be talking to God again. Now, the last time God spoke with God, God said, let's make man in our image. Let's make something unique about man that gives us something unique about him. And now, God has his second meeting, and I'm honing in on all of this. And this is what I get. It's not good that man should be alone. I'm looking at this and I realize what God is telling us is why you were created and how uniquely you were created. You were created for fellowship. And there's the problem. Every bit of loneliness you feel, every hurt you feel from rejection, every awkward feeling when somebody looks you straight in the face and gives you those words, I just want to be friends. Or it's not you, it's me. All those kind things that aren't so kind when they're ultimately said. I can see the hurt in your face, Jen. Oh, sorry. <laughs> All of those things remind us that there's something inside of us that hungers for fellowship. We want purpose, but purpose outside of people really doesn't make an awful lot of sense. But everything somehow revolves around the fact that unique to you and to me, this will that God gave us, somewhere deep at the core of it all is an appetite, a gnawing hunger for fellowship. Now the reason I say that is, is that God created that and you that way because I remind you, God wanted you to understand where he's coming from. He's made us in his shadow that somewhere in all of that you realize God is lonely too. But he's lonely for you. He is so lonely for you that he'd rather die than live without you. I'd say that that's pretty profound. 
Now, the reason I say that in the context of what Jesus is saying here is, that's what makes death so threatening. Remember how he says, on the day that you eat of this, you can eat of all of the trees of the garden except for one. Because on the day that you eat of this, mut pamut, literally you'll die to die. It's called a double infinitive. You can't get more sure than this. In the New Testament, we read it as most assuredly, which is literally amen, amen. And for some of you, maybe you pray that way. You'll be like, amen and amen and amen. And what you're saying is, most assuredly, that's it. Well, understand that he tells him, he goes, I'm giving you free reign over all of this, but I'm also giving you the choice to choose wrong, but I'd really rather you don't. But he says, but on the day that you do this, you're going to die. Now, please understand, we read the story and we read the text and we know by chapter 3, Adam and Eve both eat of it. And might I say it's Eve and then Adam. But in all of that, it tells us that once they do, their eyes are open. And then they hear God walking in the cool of garden and they run and hide from him. It isn't like death as we understand it where they just went, ah, it's poison. And they call, you know, they keel over and they fall to the ground. And God goes, well, let's start all over again. Genesis chapter 1, take 2, 2.0. But he isn't doing that. What we read in all of that is, is that something must have happened that God defined as death on that day that we don't. Because if we say death, what we mean is obviously someone's not breathing anymore. Their heart's not pounding anymore. Their brain's not functioning anymore. Well, on that day, Adam and Eve lost the one thing they were created for, intimate fellowship. That fellowship that they had before this point, they lost. Because now sin is involved and it's come between them. As Isaiah would say, that your iniquity has separated you between you and your God. This is what hurts God. Why does it hurt us so much when somebody passes away as we call death? Because we lose fellowship with them. We could stare at the shell, the jersey they once wore. Could be in a casket or whatever the case is. And I'm not trying to bring up something painful, but I want to pull out the point. Is that we can look, we can talk, but they're not going to talk back. We can make plans, but they're not going to fulfill those plans. We can have hopes and we can look to the future. But we know now that as we look to the future, they're not involved in it like we would have liked them to be. And that hurts. And the reason it is all revolves again again, about the point that we've lost fellowship. It's the very thing that God recognizes in Genesis 3 because it's what he lost with Adam and Eve when they chose evil. Now, understand, here is the worst part for God. Is that, that doesn't mean they cease to breathe. And obviously, if you know, in Scripture, two things must coexist for life. For instance, it'll tell us that faith with action, or James would say faith with works, is alive, faith without works is dead. Those two things should be. It says it's the body without the soul. It's dead. You get the idea. Two things need to function to be, to be alive. But here's the worst part. For Adam and Eve, they're still breathing. They're still talking. They're still looking. They're still giggling. They're still doing their things. They're going to be working. He's going to be working the ground. She's going to be having babies. But they're still dead. And that almost seems more painful. Or may, may I say, maybe let's just remove the word almost. Well, you want to have the relationship, but it's their choice and you can't have it. And no matter what you do without completely commandeering their free choice, they're not going to want it. It's like walking dead. What would that look like to us? I'll tell you what that'll look like to us. It'll look like hatred. That's what it'll look like. 
Somebody you want to be a friend with, but they're not going to be a friend to you. They don't want any fellowship with you. And you know why? Because you chose a friend they've declared war on, whether they know it or not. And there's the problem. And this is what Jesus is saying. He goes, I want you to understand. I, I know what you're feeling. And understand, he comes in very different levels on this. The word is miseo in the Greek, by the way. Miseo, by the way, means more than just to feel this animosity or anger or detestment against another person. It also means to slight against and to prefer against. To choose all but you. Or to choose against you. And I realize, sometimes hatred could be something that we would feel and we would call hatred when someone else does it, but we wouldn't recognize it when we're doing it ourselves. You know, when you've got that, that you want to make that group chat and you're going to include all those names and then you kind of scroll through your contact list and you're like, hmm, I'm told of this story. I never do this. But you know, hmm, oh, maybe not that one. You're still choosing against. But imagine if that was your life, your morning, and you were kind of scrolling through your diary and you're like, and God's contact comes up and you're like, hmm, not that one. God knows what that is. And Jesus looks and he goes, look at now that I've called you friends, you're going to need that that's going to come with a cost. And here is the cost in it. If the world hates you, you need to recognize the reason it hates you is because it sees me in you. But let me ask you something, if I could be honest. If the world ardently and openly hates Jesus, would you feel really good if they loved you? I mean, if we're going to call ourselves Christian, and by Christian we mean Christ-like, it's what the term means, how could I look like Jesus or act like Jesus and be like Jesus and have them love me and hate him unless somehow I think I can do Jesus better than Jesus can do Jesus? And that just doesn't make any sense at all. So listen, if the world hates you, would you start by this? Would you please know this? It hated me first. Now, I won't get into a lot of grammar because I know that that could be dry, but I'd like you to recognize something that's really important. In the verb tenses on a lot of this, there are two tenses that, well, there's three basic, but there's two that are most commonly used. There's perfect and passive. I'm sorry, I'm sorry it's active and passive. And it's really, really simple. Because the difference really is just who's making it happen. That's kind of the idea. So, if I took my, this is my bottle, and I'm throwing it for a moment to Jaden. And Jaden caught it. And by the way, he did that quite well. I'll tell you, by the way, good hand eye. Go ahead and throw it back. Sure. Now, for me, for Jaden to get this bottle, Jaden, all had Jaden had to do was nothing. He passively received it. Does that make sense? But for me to get that bottle to him, I have to actively make a choice to get it there. He didn't have to make a choice for this to come at him. He just had to make a choice what he was going to do with it once it came at him. Does that make sense? Active means I make a choice to make it happen. So I threw the bottle. I actively did. Jaden, on the other hand, has two options. His brain says, well, here are the two basic options. One is I could try to avoid or evade this. Or on the other side of it, I could try to catch it, which, by the way, you've done, well, both times. Now, uh, understand, in other words, if Jaden does not want to receive what's coming at him, and as long as it's coming at him in the proper direction, he actually may have to make an active choice to get away from it. Does that make sense? Now, this is the reason I say that. When it says that the world hates you, it doesn't just... Here, I'll actually take that because that looks good now. Thank you. Uh, 
It doesn't say that the world just woke up and went, I don't know, hatred's thrust against me and I've passively received it. They are making a conscious choice to hate you because they've made a conscious choice to hate Jesus. And there's our problem. They could say, well, I don't wake up every morning trying to think about how to make Jesus miserable. Have you ever met people that they say don't believe in God, but they're angry at him? That, that makes any sense at all. How can you be angry at someone that doesn't exist? Well, here's the idea. In verse 19, he tells us, okay, look at it. If you were in the world, the world would love you. Now, by the way, it's important to note, you know that there are different lit words for love. Those of you who are kind of familiar with that in the Greek, this is not that word agape. It isn't like if you were part of their crew, they would selflessly serve you and surrender and be committed to that. This is that word phileho, which means the befriend. In other words, hey, if you were actually of the world, they would be more than happy to pull you in the crew. They would befriend you. But because you're not of the world... I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And you can think, well, thanks, Jesus. You chose me, and as a result of that, the world hates me. But you know how this is. People have a tendency to slight against, be concerned about, not trust, be suspicious of people that are very different than their own. Is that not true? And it's interesting because it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how tall you are or from what culture you've come from. Someone's going to be suspicious of you because they're not of your culture, color, or background. Some of you are familiar with the fact I was born on the south side of Chicago, and I used to say I was the only white chocolate chip in the cookie. I know what it's like to be the one guy on the outside. And to have people look and don't think that racism or all those things only go one way. It goes any way because people, and what Jesus is telling us, it is a natural reaction to people who aren't in your group. You go, I don't know. I don't know about you, man. And here, now I'm an American. Oh, you're one of those. I'm one of those. It's like, do you realize how you will change things if I bring you into the group? Probably. And Jesus goes, you need to recognize that in every statement Jesus makes about someone's animosity or dislike or favoring against you, it also comes with a counterpart that's a beautiful promise that you can miss. Let's face it. If somebody was going to invite you, somebody didn't invite you to the party that you didn't even, I wouldn't have gone to that party anyways. Don't you want to be invited so you could say, no, 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 I'm not going to go. Somewhere in all of that, it isn't like you want to be avoided, you want to be ostracized, but it was the very thing that Jesus promised, by the way. Now, hear me on this, by the way. This isn't the first time Jesus has said something like this, and this isn't the first time someone's demonstrated this. Here, let me give you a classic example. In 1 Kings chapter 22, Some of you are familiar. There was a time when Israel was broken up into two groups. The northern ten tribes were called Israel. The southern two tribes, that's Joseph, I'm sorry, that's Judah and and Benjamin were in the south in the area of Jerusalem. In the south, the king's name was Yehoshaphat. In the north, the king's name was Ahav, or we might say Ahab. And the guy in the north, by the way, is actually wanting to go to war because he's let a king go that had declared war on him three years ago that promised him land he had not gotten. And now he's like, you know what, I'm going to go get that land. And he 
kind of goes and he starts rallying support. And of course, he rallies with the king of the south. It would be like Scotland declaring war and asking if we wanted to jump in. So with that, you know, Joseph had, by the way, one of those guys known for leaping first and praying later. This was one of those examples. He's like, yeah, bro, I'm in. We're in it. Come on, let's do this together. Yeah, let's go. And then he goes, well, you know, maybe we should actually seek the Lord. And so he's like, well, yeah, let's call in some prophets. And he calls in all of these kooks. And it is like Coachella of prophets. And they're doing all kinds of crazy things in all of this. And somewhere in all of that, Jehoshaphat smells a rat. And he looks at Ahab and he goes, hey, um, do you have any like real prophets? Like ones of the Lord? Because this isn't what I'm looking at. And this is what King Ahab says to him. And this is in 1 Kings 22, verse 8. So you know I'm not making it up. He says, oh, there's this one guy. There's only one left. And his name is Mechaiah, which, by the way, means who's like God. And he says, he's the son of Imcha or Imla, uh, whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. Because he doesn't prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Now, let me ask you something. If you had a friend like this, what would you think? I mean, now here at church, that may be a different response altogether. But imagine this week you're kind of talking to someone. It's like, hey, come on, we're going to go to this. We're going to do this thing. We're going to hang out. It's going to be really cool. It's going to get kicking night. And you're like, sure, sounds really good. But, you know, maybe we should pray about it. Pray about it. I don't know about that. What does the word say? I don't want to hear what the Bible has to say. Why not? Because what it tells me is it doesn't say anything good about me right now. And there are part of you that thinks, mm, maybe that's my sign that I should not hang out with you right now. Because like, imagine it's like, well, there's this one guy and he actually speaks the words of the Lord. But what he says is that bad's going to come to me. Well, now, which one of you thinks hanging out with him is a great idea? You're aware of the fact that when police, for instance, want to arrest someone because they're doing something illegal in the house, they'll arrest everybody in the house, even those that aren't doing it, because it's the way that you start sorting through it. And the next thing you know, you're in a prison somewhere, and you're like, well, what are you in here for? You're like, nothing. And then, of course, everyone's like, sure, of course that's the case. This is what Isaiah said about Jesus, by the way. And Isaiah 49, 7, he says, Thus says the Lord, the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to whom man despises, and to whom the nation abhors. And most of you are familiar with Isaiah 53, which says he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief, but it says he was despised and rejected of men. You can't tell me that the Messiah can't be rejected, because Isaiah told us that 720 years beforehand, and which Luke would tell us as well that they reject him. Jesus warned us, by the way, back at the Sermon on the Mount, when he says this, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you and cast your name out as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Oh, it gets weirder. Because if you were to record all of the commandments of the Lord, which are roughly about 1,200 commandments Jesus gives in the Gospels, in all of those, listen to this psycho command. This is one of my favorites. First of all, he says, You are blessed. Now, which one of you goes, oh, I so agree. I am so blessed when people hate me. I'm so blessed when people exclude me. Notice Jesus put that in there. When they say all manner of evil against me. There's no part of me that thinks, yippee. And yet he says, and here's his commandment, he goes, jump for joy. Jump for joy. Because, because first of all, great is your reward in heaven. Second, you are actually in line. You're in great company. You're with the prophets. And third, because the kingdom of heaven is yours, man. 
Now, please hear me in this. God bless you. Don't worry, just speak. No, no, no. God bless you, bro. No, no, man, I know. I know you've got to go to work. Hear me on this. That Jesus says that if you recognize the value of being part of my crew and being identified that way, if you recognize what it meant to embrace the kingdom of heaven, if you recognize what it would be like to be a part of that crew, you actually would jump for joy. But at that moment, all we see is what we're losing, not what we're gaining. Isn't that true? That's what hurts. We're seeing a living death in front of us, a lack of fellowship. And because of that, it hurts. Now, now hear me on this. He not only said it at the mount, for instance, but when he sent the ten out, I'm sorry, the twelve out, two by two, he says this in, in Matthew 10, verse 22, you will be hated by all for my namesake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. He also promises that at the end times when he says in Matthew 24, 9, he says that you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. He goes, you need to recognize being my friend is going to come at quite a cost. But if you think for a moment what that means is that you're going to be called to be alone and to be lonely, well, then you're missing the fact that God created you for fellowship and he's the one who wants to meet that in the first place. So what does it boil down to in all of this? And then the rest of it picks up. Turn to John chapter 3 for a moment. Get those Bibles out. Flip through it, you know, or your apps. John 3, verse 19. Now you're probably, you don't have to be brilliant to recognize this is three verses past John three sixteen where it tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And then he says, by the way, whoever believes in, whoever believes in the son already has everlasting life, but whoever does not believe in the son is already condemned because not believed in the one that God has sent. And then he tells us this, and this is the bottom line. This is the verdict, the judgment, chapter 3, verse 19, that light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Evil. Everyone who practices evil hates, and notice that word, hates the light. And doesn't come into the light because lest their evil deeds would be exposed. But he who does the truth comes into the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they've been done by God. Because this is the problem, is that if Jesus has made you the light of the world and you walk into a room, light is coming into the room and those who don't want to be near light are going to have a real problem with you because they can't avoid light if it's coming at them. And if they hate the light, because what it does show is the truth, and they're lying against the truth, well, then there's our problem. Now, when I was younger, at school, way back in those days, we had this opportunity to kind of do this in this sort of speech, performing debate, so forth. I, I had to do, uh, my role is more of an acting role at the time. And I had to do this scene from a... Uh, uh, from a, a play called The Shadow Box. Now, was a, there, was, there was a lot that the people that actually asked me to do this didn't know about my own history, but basically the whole point of it was it was a man and his wife. And the girl was coming in, and he has just been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he is going to die. And as he is going to die, she is doing everything she can to avoid the obvious conversation that he has to break her the news. So she is busy, and she is frantic, and she is giggly, and she is a bag of cats of emotions. And all he's trying to do is tell her one simple thing, I'm going to die. But I remember that scene profoundly, and it was way before I knew the Lord, because what he had to share with her made everything else she was saying immaterial and irrelevant. 
Because what he was sharing with her was going to, in essence, season everything of her outlook from this point forward about them. And she was going to do whatever she could to avoid it. And as he would start into it, she would rail off and she would divert and she would swing the conversation to this or that. Because in the end of it all, she just did not want to hear what was clear as she really knew what he was going to tell her. And it was clear by the countenance that he was wearing. Now, why is that? Because, why? because that's the point when you're full on for Jesus. People will happily bring up politics because it's a diversionary tactic. And if all else fails, what do we default to? The weather. You know you're in trouble. Once you've gotten to the weather, what that, that's your door out of the conversation, right? What that means is we're really done talking about anything of substance. And he says, I want to warn you. You are going to be hated if you're going to be light. And if you're going to be with me, you're going to be light. Now the question is, will you focus on who hates you? Or will you focus on the friend that you have? Because if you focus on what you lose, you'll be dumb. If you focus on your friend, it won't matter. When you commit your life to someone, you know it comes part and parcel with all kinds of things but you're convinced that the relationship you gain from it is worth all of the other things that come with it. If you've ever had children, you know how that works. Because it isn't like you thought, if I just had a child, I know mine would be perfect and would never cause me any grief and it would never make any messes and I'd never have to pick up after them. If that's the case, you are completely delusional. I'd like to think you had children for the same reason we did, which is because we had so much love, we needed someone else to dump it on. So follow me on the rest of this text as we bring this around. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you, verse 20. A servant's not greater than his master. You can't do me better than I do me. Hey, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And the word, by the way, for what's with Dioko, it means to pursue, means to chase, to make someone flee. He goes, man, if they're going to do that with me and you look like me, they're going to do that with you too. If they kept my word on the other hand, well, they'll keep yours too. You'll note this. John will actually write, in First John, he'll say, this is actually one of the ways you can tell if someone's of the world or someone's actually of the Lord, is what they, when you bring up Scripture, where they go with it. He goes, but all these things they will do for my name's sake, because they don't know him who sent me. Do you see that in verse 21? Please look at that verse for a moment. Don't let just hear it, but look at that verse. All these things they will do for my name's sake, because they don't know him who sent me. Did you see that? Now, here's the point. Two words for no. Some of you are aware of that. There's the word idol and the word gnosko. Gnosko is a knowledge of experience. Corporate experience. I'll know more about Tunde. If somebody came in with a gun, the way that Tunde responds from that experience, though we have no plan of this, the, the way that Tunde resp- responds to that, we will have this shared memory together. And we will be able to say that experience helped us learn a lot about each other. Does that make sense? That's the word gnosko. But idol, by the way, is just simply being taught. For instance, someone told you that that color is yellow, August, and that color is green, July. Somewhere down the line, you just kind of looked and they said, that equals this. And for the most part, you just kind of went, okay, there we go. That's it, though. It's just a simple perception. Does that make sense? Now, that's the word that is used here, first of all. When it says, you know why they hate me in the first place? You know why they're going to do all of these things? Because they really don't know God. They won't even perceive him. But here's the worst part. Remember when we were talking about active versus passive? It's active. 
Do you know what that means? They will not perceive God. It isn't like they can't see Him. They're not able to see Him. They're passively obscured from it. It literally means they will not go to class. And if they're forced in the classroom, they've got headphones on and they're staring at a screen that has nothing to do with it. They are not going to listen and they are not going to look. It is an active verb. And here's the point of it. He goes, there is a point. And what Jesus is going to tell us is, is that man, these people are going to actually kill you in thinking they're serving God from it. And you know why? Because they have no concept of who God really is. Because when God reveals himself, they're not willing to look. This is exactly what it says in Romans chapter 1. Paul understood this because he says, listen to this. The wrath of God is being revealed against the wickedness and godlessness of men, hear me, that suppress the truth in their own ungodliness. It doesn't say they don't get it. It says actually that it's there and they're pushing it down. They're holding it down. The opposite of the word apocalypsis for revelation. They're covering it instead of seeing it. And it says, because to be honest, actually the qualities about God, His invisible attributes, His eternal God, and so forth, are clearly seen even by what God has made. Therefore, man is without excuse. And even though they knew God, they refused to give Him credit or glory, but instead their foolish minds became futile. God says, here I am, I love you, I want you. And they're like, la, 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 I am not listening. And that is the point. And you think if I could just shout a little louder or do God a little bit better, if I could just bring beer at the, con- you know, at the front so that people can feel more comfortable in the world when they come in, you need to hear. If you're not going to listen to God, then you're not going to want to hear what God has to say. Well, then you're probably not going to want to be here because why go through all of that other stuff and make people feel comfortable in their sins so they can go to hell and sort of be massaged into it when instead we could say this is the truth and this is it. And if you uh, listen to what Jesus has to say, the truth is going to set you free. Nothing else is going to do that. But please hear me in this. These people will not listen. They will not perceive. And it's, I'm back to that scene again where this man's trying to tell his wife that he's dying and she will do everything else but listen. Let me show you the extent as we bring this to close. Verse 22. If I haven't come and spoken to them, they'd have no sin. Now, understand what this means is that it doesn't mean that they would be sinless. What he's saying is they'd have some form of excuse. Well, I never heard it. And he's going, oh, these people have not only heard it, they heard it directly from me. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Because he who hates me, well, he's going to hate dad too. If I've not done among them the works that no one else did, well, then, they'd, again, they'd have an excuse for that sin. They would be with no sin in this. But now they have seen and they both hated me and my father. Now, by the way, this shouldn't surprise us because a thousand years before this in Psalm 69.4, he says David knew this when it says, those who hate me, hate me without a cause. He goes, it was written there. Now, hear me on this. He says in the last couple of verses, but you need to know that the Holy Spirit's coming to help her, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, and he will testify mortorio of me, and so will you. You will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Now, don't miss this. Let's close this up and hear me. God has shown his light and people want to look. If they'll step in the light, it'll be clearly seen that God did the work. If they don't want to step in the light, it's because they want to convince themselves what they're doing is okay when it's clearly not. Hey, if they were convinced it was absolutely true and it was right and it was good, they could step in the light. They wouldn't be afraid of it. How could you be afraid of it? If you know it's right, because then it's like, well, shine whatever light you want to put on it. It's clearly good. 
But when you're running denial, that's another story. So he goes, look in. I've given them no way out of this. Please hear me. Back in John 5, Jesus spoke about different ways in which God speaks to you. He spoke about the scriptures. Remember, it says, you search the scriptures, but you think by them you possess eternal life, but they are they that testify of me. He says, you've sent to John, but John has testified of me, and the Father himself has testified of me. He says, man, you go to Moses, but Moses is the thing. He goes, and the very works that I do testify of me. Why is that important? Because those very same things Jesus is bringing up here. He's like, you want to try to deny Jesus? Jesus is like what? You, like you needed a man? John the Baptist, that's a man he spoke. The Father spoke personally to you. Scripture speaks personally about me, universally about me. And he goes, you realize, here's the deal. And my works testify. Jesus goes, I spoke. That's the living word in front of them. Scripture incarnate. And they still don't want that. The works that I do, the miracles that nobody else could do, that testifies, but they're still not listening. Same thing that he spoke about in John 5. So what else was there? God speaking personally and God using people. He goes, and when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to do that. He'll speak personally. But also, by the way, I'm going to use people. You sent to John, you sent to Moses, they spoke about me. He goes, well, guess who the next John and Moses is going to be? It's going to be you. He goes, you're going to testify too. Because when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be materioch or materejo, and it means evidence. Now understand, here's the point. God is not losing this battle because of a lack of evidence, because he has no airtight case. The only reason why anyone doesn't want fellowship with God has nothing to do with God's fault, only your choice. And this is how we close it. My question is, first of all, have you said yes? Have you said yes to this evidence that God has owned? The, the evidence of changed lives. The evidence of the miracles that we're willing to see or not see in our life. And you go, yeah, but that was bad. And go, but God carried you through it. And there was this and God healed you. It was amazing. We could focus on a sickness and not on the healing. Will we step into the light and actually let God... Sort through everything of our life and show us what correlates, what works and what doesn't. What reconciles and what needs to be completely buried and what needs to be resurrected. Have we accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? Because what Jesus says is, you're going to be left with no choice other than this. To openly declare, I just don't want you. God created you for him. Because it tells us by him and for him you were created. And you're like, yeah, but I don't want you. Because that's what we're going to say. On the other side of it, we can say, well, if you created me for you, and this, there's always going to be this vacuum, this black hole in me, until I say yes. I recognize Jesus is not giving soft sell here. He's like, hey, everybody, I'm going to be like your buddy, your homeboy. We're going to all like have hugs and sing kumbaya. And then we go like, yeah, I'll take all that. And then it's like, wait a minute, now people don't like me? Jesus isn't letting us do that. He's like, you need to know, if you're going to be my friend, people are going to rise up and have a problem with it. Even religious people recognize Jesus' primary uh, animosity came from religious people. Just because someone's religious does not mean they're going to applaud your choice to follow Jesus, especially the real Jesus. And just because you feel like, well, you know, I, I haven't given anyone reason to hate me, Jesus goes, notice here, you don't have to give someone reason to hate you. They can just hate you because you're just breathing. Have you learned that? 
You could be like, well, it's because I'm white or I'm black or I'm American or I'm British or I'm whatever. It's like sometimes people just hate you because they just got too much hate and they need, and you just happen to be there. Well, if that's the case, well, then you might as well give them a better reason to hate you. Follow Jesus. <laughs> at least you can sleep at night because you know what's a, what Jesus is always going to give us a better alternative. Have you said yes to the gift of Jesus Christ? His death on the cross to pay for your sins. His resurrection to make you brand new. Because whether you know it or not, a lot of people aren't sharing it, but you need to know nobody comes to the Father but except through Jesus Christ. And that is a gift that is given you. It is a price God paid, and He leaves the choice in your hands. And it's in His Word. It is testified in people. And God will speak it directly to you if you give Him a chance. But if you have said yes to Him, then my question is, are you willing to be the evidence he desires you to be? Because I remind you, this ended with, and you are going to be evidence too. You've been with me from the beginning. And I recognize I'm not going to leave you that way, and I'm certainly not not going to use you. You have way too much experience not to be used. There are people out there that I love. He's calling Adam's back and Eve's back. But they need to know how good it is to be in the garden. And most of them have forgotten. Some of them have never known. And they think, well, that God, and we're going to be busy trying to tidy up an argument instead of being the evidence God really wants us to be. So no matter who you are and where you've come from today, now notice, I didn't ask, were you a member of a church? Though God tells us we need to be in fellowship because we were created for it. The question is, are you in fellowship with God first? Have you accepted this? Because your iniquity has separated you from the living God, as my iniquity had as well. But God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, and God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Understand, Jesus didn't just pay for that price. He took it out upon himself and then removed it and buried it at the tomb and then rose again without it to offer us a brand new life as a new creation, to walk in the newness of life with him. And that's the choice you make. The question is, what choice will you make? But understand, there's no, I kind of, he's like, you're going to love me or hate me. Jesus is not going to allow there to be any middle ground on this. Will you pray with me, please? Jesus, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be God in the flesh, walking among people you created for fellowship that are ardently bowing to rock and, and to pieces of wood and gold and silver, things that you made, that they carved into other images, much like themselves, just like Romans 1 says. And how you desperately reach out to people, even in this room, how you reach out to us. And I think about that whole idea of you wanting to say a very simple and clear message. And how we can divert it even with things that seem appropriate but still divert us from the point. So we get caught up in traditions, not that they're bad. Or we get caught up in religion, not that that's in and of itself bad. Or we get caught up in going, well, I'm part of a church or I'm part of a movement or I'm part of a whatever and I have a badge and I have a name and I'm on a list and I'm on a roll. The question is whether or not our names are written in heaven and that only comes to accepting the gift of Jesus Christ where it's not about our works but about your work that you did at the cross. And it's not about our earnings but it's about your grace and we receive that by faith. <clears throat> And I pray today that as you work on our hearts, that we wouldn't just go, okay, well, 
Maybe. Because we actively make a choice here. And as your word has gone forth and your offer goes forth, that is the active part. And now we respond to that. And either we receive it by simply absorbing or we divert and push it away. It's like Jaden could have done with the water bottle. And I pray today for every one of us that that would not be the case. That we would accept your gift and cry out to you and say, Jesus, if this is really what you've done for me, I recognize there will be those who won't approve. But if what I gain is you out of this and a relationship with the God who created me to be with him, and I know that I'll never be complete and satisfied and content until I say yes to that, well, then I need to, regardless of the cost. But I also pray for every person in here who has said yes to you, but we're afraid to be bold or we're afraid to be outspoken because we know that the more we look like you, the more we're going to be hated by others. And if we're going to be tepid, the response might be tepid. But another word for tepid is lukewarm, and we know that's not a positive term. You spit that out of your mouth. Ironic to me that we could kind of get a lackluster response from the world by being lackluster, but we wouldn't get a lackluster response from you. Because you didn't create us for that. You don't want us in some form of spiritual coma. You want us vibrant, alive, and thriving. So if there be anyone who has yet to receive the gift of Jesus Christ, and you know today is your day to say yes, pray this prayer with me. Look at I don't need you to stand up or raise your hand. I just need you to, to agree. I need you to accept His gift. And here's a simple prayer. God, I'm a sinner, and that sin makes me guilty before you, but I believe that you paid for the price of my sin on the cross of Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son who died on the cross to pay for my guilt and shame and my sin. And in doing so, it was paid in full. And when he died, it was paid in full. When he was buried, it was buried with him. But when he rose again, it was left behind. And in that, I just want to say yes. If this is the bill, you've paid my bill and you just give me a choice, I say yes. I recognize that may mean that there will be people who won't be happy with that, but those people can't pay for my sins. Those people can't take away my guilt. They can only add to it. And today I choose to follow you, Jesus. I choose to take that gift and in that make me the new person you really want to make me, the one that actually has fellowship with you and is satisfied for the first time in my life, satisfied. Please let me be such a person. As I, as I receive this gift, you've thrown it at me, and I receive it. I hear you, God. I hear you. And I'm willing to receive today, and I say yes. In Jesus' name, if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. And God, I pray for every person here who has made claim to you, myself included. God, I know that, we, that Paul himself kind of toned it down and got much more philosophical in Athens, but it's the one place we don't see a church planted. He never writes to the church of Athens. There's no church of Athens listed in, in Revelation or, or in any other place. And God, I just recognize that even Paul said, you know what, when I left there and came to you guys in Corinth, I resolved not to do any of that, but rather to proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I recognize that when we do that, people kind of go mental on us. We can kind of play God games, but the moment we mention the name of Jesus, and you told us that here, it says that we would be persecuted for your name's sake. 
Well, we don't want to hide that name because it is the name above all names and it is the only name given under heaven among men that we must be saved. This is the one name that saves people. And so I understand why the enemy wants us quiet, but we are not going to be silent. So God, fill us with that boldness, regardless of the response, Lord, because we recognize there might be greater animosity, but there will also be greater fruitfulness. And we help us to see the greater fruitfulness so that we don't just think it's about people being nastier now. But pour your Holy Spirit upon us that we could become bold and empowered, Lord, to get over ourselves to do that which you call us to do now. So, Lord, we pray that you make us such people. Raise up an army, even in this little room, raise up an army of people that just want to be bold about you and knowing that though the world may hate us, that we still delight you. And may we hold your delight of higher value than the world's animosity. And so we hand ourselves to you and we say, God, at whatever expense, now please let us be full on for you and change the world in us and then change the rest of the world through us as we give ourselves to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.